Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. For more than 40 years, Joe Yancey has worked to help people with mental illness lead fulfilling lives. He first got involved with the local nonprofit Places for People in 1978. He retired as its CEO last month. And during the 42 years in the interim, he's seen many things change, and some things maybe not change nearly enough. And he joins us today to talk about it. So, Joe Yancey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. It's glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So Places for People is an institution these days, but it was still only a few years old when you started working there. And and that was a pivotal time in the treatment of people with mental illness. Set the scene for us. What was going on in the U.S. in the years leading up to the founding of Places for People? So prior to 1972, when Places for People was founded, Um, In most cases, people with serious mental illness were institutionalized. And so all across the country, almost every every state had these large institutions where people with mental illness uh, resided in. Um, The reality is, Sarah, that it's really only been since the mid-1960s, so about 55 years, that community-based mental health care has even been part of the equation. So... When I got there to Places for People in 1978, we were pretty much on the tail end of what has been called deinstitutionalization, where uh, states across the country were uh, releasing people from these large institutions. Uh, Most of that was brought about because of uh, court cases and uh, newer medications and so on and so forth. So. That was what was happening then, but in the continuum of time, and particularly when we look at physical health, um, we are still in a very novice stage uh, in regard to behavioral health, which includes mental health disorders as well as substance uh, use disorders. Hmm. So what led you into this field of work? Honestly, um, I saw a real parallel, and we could talk about that later, between what I had spent uh, the formative part of my years, uh, which really was around the civil rights movement hmm. and, uh, and, and, and this work. And so there were real parallels to me. Uh, additionally, quite honestly, my mother also suffered from a mental illness. And um, I addressed that as a teenager uh, as part of, uh, part of my growing up. So this issue was, was very close to you. Yes. What was your first job within the organization? You know, my first job was actually uh, on what we call the uh, maintenance crew. Um, And so uh, people would come in in the morning. And again, these are people that had spent the majority of their lives in institutions that actually at St. Louis, uh, at the time, State Hospital. Hmm. Um, And they would come and uh, we would have a meeting and we basically kind of would take care of the things we needed to take care of. And as the maintenance crew, our job was to keep the place clean. And so we would have a morning meeting and an afternoon meeting. And um, and, and along with doing those things, we also would do groups and, uh, and, and, and that type of thing. So it seems pretty unusual to start in the maintenance field and to wind up the CEO. Uh, what, what was that trajectory? Was there a point when they're like, hey, this guy can do a lot more than maintenance? Well, I think that it really is has to do with, um, in, in particularly in this field, their entry points oftentimes may be that. I feel mm-hmm. that I was very fortunate and blessed in the sense that spending that time kind of on the ground and doing that type of work prepared me significantly for 
uh, challenges as I continue to uh, do different roles <laughs> in the field. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's good. You really understand how the low man on the totem pole feels. That's where you started. Basically, yes. Uh-huh. So you you mentioned uh, this idea of deinstitutionalization. De- um, this was sweeping the country. It was not just a St. Louis thing, but there'd been many people who'd been in these these mental institutions um, for years. How big a jolt was it to suddenly have this freedom of we're going to do something other than have you in a giant institution? Were people prepared to even deal with that at, at that point? Uh, quite honestly, I, I, you know, again, I don't think that uh, the community or the community-based system was really prepared mm-hmm. at that time. And so um, I think for uh, a lot of folks, our main focus was keeping people in housing so that they were not on the street and homeless. Um, uh, wasn't a lot of what I would call treatment occurring at that point in time. Um, so, you know, it, it, uh, it's one of those things that is evolving and continues to evolve in terms of, uh, uh, behavioral health treatment, both in terms of mental health as well as substance, uh, disorders. When did there end up being more of a focus on, hey, treatment is really huge. It's not just about finding housing for people. Well, I think one of the biggest, uh, uh, catalysts of that is what I tend to call the consumer movement. And this is where that parallel with civil rights comes into play. Um, uh, basically, uh, the, the consumer movement was really uh, people that had uh, dealt with their mental illness for years um, started to basically rise up and say, wait a minute, hey, nothing about us without us. Hmm. Um, we want a life just like anybody else that has any other type of chronic illness. So, for instance, diabetes is a chronic illness, and we have many, many, many people who are dealing with diabetes on a regular basis, but we do not put them in institutions, and we do not say you do not have a life uh, or you don't have the potential for a life with purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. And uh, that consumer movement really, uh, you know, I think uh, brought a lot of that to bear. The other things that had to do with that were really uh, understanding and bringing science into the work so that we started to understand the brain um, much better than we had before, understood, uh, you know, the neurotransmitters and the, you know, the chemicals such as serotonin and dopamine and glutamate and what have you. And therefore, we're able to uh, develop newer medications. So, uh, you know, over time, uh, the medications uh, were more effective, uh, had more efficacy in terms of treating illness because we understood the illness better because of the science and understanding the brain more. And, you know, the other thing is uh, is that, you know, uh, science also played a part in development of what we call uh, evidence-based treatment models. In other words, uh, similar to the physical health um, that treatments when uh, underwent clinical randomized trials and, and demonstrated their efficacy. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so all of these things have helped with the evolution of Again, within this limited amount of time, if we think about it over a continuum of time, um, uh, you know, the kind of advances that we've seen. And that led to people saying, no, I want a life. Hmm. I don't want to be just somebody that 
has mental illness or an addiction disorder. I want a life. And so that was really a big part of the catalyst of it. And I think that's where it it really uh, kind of co- correlates with civil rights, I think. Hearing you talk about this consumer movement, um, it, it's fascinating to think about the repercussions for that. And I imagine for those of you that were in this field and had come in hoping to make a difference in these people people's lives, that it must have been a great thing, but it also must have been a little bit terrifying to have to maybe give up some control and let people take the lead on their own cases. Was that hard to do? Uh, I think that's been a challenge for the field, and I think, frankly, it continues to be a challenge for the field. Um, You know, we really try to put a focus on what we call person-centered treatment. In other words, where that person is in control of their treatment. Obviously, the professionals have some expertise and some knowledge and uh, some skill sets, but at the end of the day, it is that person's life. And so, yes, I think it was Uh, challenging for the system and, as I said, continues to be. One of the things that we've seen that's been most effective is the emergence of what we call certified peer specialists. These are people who have walked in those shoes, who have dealt with the darkness, who have dealt with the challenges. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many people I know, and I know quite a few who uh, maybe had, you know, 30, 40 hospitalizations, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe 10 in a year or more who are now certified peer specialists, and they are making a huge difference in the workforce. But that also has been a challenge for the traditional professional workforce. Hmm. It's interesting. I saw on uh, Places for People's website, you talk about a journey to healing. In general, are these the kind of um, illnesses that people can heal from, or they more have to learn how to manage? It's mostly around managing. And again, that's why I I draw the parallel with any other chronic health condition. What we do in healthcare is when someone has a chronic health condition, what we want to do, our objective is to help that person to be able to develop the skills to manage that health condition so that, again, they can have a purposeful, meaningful, full life. It was not unusual in those early days, Sarah, for a psychiatrist to tell a patient, well, you know, you've been diagnosed with this uh, this mental illness, a serious mental illness. Um, there's not much we can do about it. We do have some medications that maybe can make it less uncomfortable for you. Um, but I wouldn't consider, you know, having an intimate relationship or working. That could be stressful and and so on and so forth. Can you imagine walking out of a physician's office after getting that message? Yeah. I mean, that's just soul crushing. Yeah. And and so, you know, yeah, it's about managing that illness and having a life. And that's what that journey that we talk about is all about. Mm-hmm. And these certified peer specialists, they're able to kind of show the way because they found it themselves. They found it they, themselves and they are a, a you know, a beacon, uh, you know, that says this is possible. And oftentimes in the midst of a serious depression or ongoing depression or whatever it might be, um, you know, that person that believes that tomorrow can be better than today and is willing to walk with you, enforcing that belief is extremely powerful. 
We're talking today to Joe Yancey. He's the newly retired uh, former CEO of the nonprofit Places for People. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Joe. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking today to Joe Yancey. Until last month, he was the CEO of Places for People, and he's seen a lot in his four decades working with people with mental illness. And Joe, I, I didn't call for callers there um, in, in our conversation, but we did have somebody who called in nevertheless who'd like to, to pay tribute to some work that Places for People have done, and it, it feels like, yeah, this is something we should hear from. So I'm going to go to the phone lines, and Perry is calling here from St. Louis. Um, Perry, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Thanks. I I used to work in the neighborhood of places for people, and there were a couple of black psychologists who contributed not only there but to the neighborhood. Uh, If you don't mind, have uh, Joe comment about those two gentlemen. I think one was Littleton and the other was Boyd. Um, Perry, thank you for that. And, Joe, is this ringing a bell for you? Wow, Perry, I am struggling with that, but, I mean, there has been... Uh, physicians and psychiatrists uh, over time that have worked with Places for People. Um, Those names, I apologize, but they're not ringing a bell with me. But um, I do appreciate your call, and uh, I wish I could comment further, but uh, uh, I'm unable to, Perry. I apologize for that. Yeah, Perry, thank you Sorry, for that. Sir. And um, I'm sure there's a number of people you've worked with over four decades uh, in this place, Joe. What would you look back on as one of your biggest accomplishments during the time you were with the organization? Well, I think that, you know, probably, you know, we've had several accomplishments. We've grown considerably. Uh, we are uh, the only uh, certified community behavior health uh organization in St. Louis City and County with that certification. And, and um, we, t- tell me about that. I want to stop you there. I know you have other accomplishments you want to speak to, but I understand that just happened in 2017. Um, why is that important and, and what does it mean to be a certified community behavioral health organization? Well, once again, it kind of goes back to kind of what I see as kind of a, a, a huge uh, disconnect between behavioral health or mental health uh, addiction treatment and physical health. And so, um, you know, uh, for years, uh, our federally qualified health centers within the healthcare safety net have been recognized by the federal government. Hmm. Um, Community behavioral health organizations had never been recognized. Uh, So Senator, uh, our Senator Blunt, as well as Senator Stabenow from Michigan, introduced legislation in 2015, I think it passed in 2017, for a demonstration uh, that would allow community uh, behavioral health or mental health centers to uh, become certified and therefore be recognized by the federal government. What that does is it allows us to be able to have a different payment system. So instead of a fee for service, it's a prospective payment system, uh, which is a cost-based reimbursement. Um, It allows us to uh, you know, to, 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 to have those kinds of certifications and those kinds of uh, uh, qualifications 
that put us and behavioral health kind of on a on a level playing field with physical health. Hmm. So that's why it was a, a, a very huge uh, piece. It has allowed us to grow significantly uh, to uh, increase uh, outpatient services, increase uh, outpatient substance use disorder services, uh, and increase our children and youth services, which is just so important. And is this this is just a different way of funding? Does it mean that there is now more funding for this this very needed uh, kind of service, or or not necessarily? Not necessarily more funding, um, but it has allowed us to get more funding because we've been able to subsequently received two additional uh, related federal grants to certified behavioral health organizations that um, today where we're at a point where we can provide uh, for uninsured um, mm. people without insurance. So that seems like it, a huge change. It's a huge, huge development, absolutely, in terms of access, yes. And if organizations are, are able to get this kind of certification, is there enough funding that you're able to treat the people who need it? Or does this remain um, a problem where a lack of funds is holding you back from, from everything that needs to be done? Well, it continues to be a, an issue. Um, but again, the status. And yes, we hope that all organizations are able to achieve the status that's really uh, in Congress right now in terms of being able to expand that. Um, but no, a- absolutely. I think that, you know, again, behavioral health, mental health care has always been subservient to physical health care, both in terms of resources, in terms of parity around insurance, uh, in terms of access, in terms of so many things. And, um, you know, part of our fight is, and part of the importance of the CCBHO designation is to bring behavioral health up to that same level. Frankly, I believe it is more important. <laughs> and I've come to believe that. I think you could probably make a pretty compelling argument that's the case. I have another question. This has come in um, from a caller here. We don't have time to take the call, but but Eric calling from St. Louis um, questions how you feel. There's a lot of talk right now about defunding the police and maybe restructuring how we handle the services um, that they currently handle that deal with people who are in some sort of mental distress or people dealing with, with mental illness. How would you restructure policing? Would you restructure policing to deal with with people like the clients of of places for people when they're having an incident or or need help? So we've done a lot of work over the last several years with uh, law enforcement and the uh, connection between law enforcement and people with behavioral health disorders. Um, Certainly, uh, we uh, in the behavioral health field need more funding. We need that equity Mm -hmm. around funding, as I just mentioned. Um, but I think coordinating with law enforcement, both at the police level, at the prosecutor level, at the court level, is critically important. What we want to do, and in most cases should do, is divert people with behavioral health disorders um, from the criminal justice system into treatment. Um, those, uh, those criminal justice system has become the de facto mental health institutions of our day. And we have to do the work to try to change that around. Um, You know, I'm not necessarily a proponent personally of defunding the police. I am a proponent of adequate resources across a continuum of uh, services that people need in our community, and particularly people in terms of their overall health and well-being. 
So, Joe, you seem still so engaged in these issues. And, and part of why we had you on is you have retired. You don't sound retired. What made you decide now was the time that, that you were ready to, to go? Well, uh, more than anything, Sarah, I, was, I guess it's my age <laughs> to some extent. And and I'm not, again, going anywhere. And I've been pretty clear about that. I'm very passionate about uh, these issues. Um, I'm particularly passionate about um you know, uh, emotional health. Um, I do think it is the antecedent uh, of, uh, of physical health issues as well, how we feel, how we think, how we see the world and how we believe the, see- the world sees us from an emotional context, I think has a huge part to play in our behavior and in our ultimately in terms of physical health. So uh, that's my big thing at this point is continue on that uh, bandwagon. And I, you know, I, I just will not be in charge of anything. Um, but I am not going to be silent. I'm going to be continuing to advocate uh, because I think this is uh, really the key to overall health and well-being uh, and, and impacts our physical health over the long term without question. So you're going to continue to be involved in these causes and be there advocating. You're just not doing it from that that CEO perch anymore. And that, exactly. That makes sense. And, and goodness knows we could use you in this fight. This is such an important issue. So Joe Yancey, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it, Sarah. Thank and and uh, congratulations on your retirement and, and good luck. All right. Thank you. Take care. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.